Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm Clarissa Christensen, and today we are going to be talking midlife, menopause, ageism, and really this time of life as a transformation. And who better to talk about that than today's guest? She is Rachel Lancaster. She's probably known to many of you who listen to midlife and menopause podcasts. She is the host of Magnificent Midlife, and that's also the organization that she founded, and she has just authored her first book, and I'm wading through it as we speak. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Oh, thank you so much, Clarissa. It's lovely to be here. When you say wading, I hope it's not through. No, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Oh, good. It. Good. That's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I love that this, we are having this active conversation about midlife, about menopause and beyond. And I mean, your own story, Rachel, isn't it, that you went into an early menopause. Talk a little bit about that experience and how that really pushed you maybe to where you are today and the work you do. It absolutely did, yeah. But I should preface it with saying, as I say in the book, I think it was wrong. I think the diagnosis was wrong. But at 41, I was trying for a second child. I'd wanted one since I had the first one. I finally found a man who was willing to have a reverse vasectomy even to try and make a baby with me. Oh, I'd been trying for a long time to find one. I could bend to my will and it didn't work. And eventually found one. I'm still with him now, um, 16 years later, which is very nice. But so I went for a hormone test because I thought before I get him to go for the chop, I really ought to work out whether my hormones are all right. So I went for this test. And the doctor, I think, was as flabbergasted as I was. He said, you have the hormonal profile of a postmenopausal woman. And, and that was at 41. And I just hadn't even considered it. I didn't know when menopause happened normally. I didn't know anything about it. The only thing I did know was that I had subscribed to these narratives that menopause was the end of meaningful life and that I was a shriveled up old prune. So just getting this diagnosis completely changed my view of myself and who I was and my value in the world and everything else. That kind of started the journey, yes. But it was a while before I came to terms with what was going on because for a time I got my periods back. And that was even crazier because I was casting around. I was desperate to find some information. I just didn't see myself as a postmenopausal woman. So I just went into, I don't know, fight mode, find something out that will help. And I found Dr. Marilyn Glenville, who's a nutritionist who specializes in women's health. And I went to see her and she said, no promises, but if you follow what I'm suggesting, there's a chance you could get your periods back and your fertility back. So I did exactly what she suggested, which was basically cutting out alcohol, caffeine, sugar, eating as organic as I possibly could, eating regularly and small amounts regularly so that I could keep my blood sugar levels consistent so that they weren't dropping and spiking throughout the day. And I did this because I was absolutely desperate to find some sort of solution to this and I did it. And within five weeks, I had a bleed. <laughs> and then I went back to the doctors. I had another hormone test. They said, You've gone back to being pre-menopause. <laughs> what was all this about? Oh. And so my beloved went for the snip. It didn't work. I didn't get the baby. 
But the book I've decided is the baby that I never had. <laughs> That's what oh I've God. decided. Why yeah. not? Yeah, indeed. That in itself is a phenomenal story, Rachel. And it points to, I think, one of your key strands that I see you in the book, but I've also seen you on social say it's not the end, but it's also not all about HRT. It is bigger than than that narrative. And I think the importance of this holistic or whole approach so critical. I think it's absolutely massive. And I think increasingly in our modern world, we want a panacea. We want to take a pill and for everything to be better. We don't want to necessarily do the work. But my what this has taught me, this whole experience, because it didn't last that long. I think it lasted for about nine months. And then my body went back to being postmenopausal again. It's like, what the heck is going on? But I think what that meant really was that I was in perimenopause and that's why they now don't do the hormonal tests yeah. really they don't like to do them because you can be one thing on one day and one thing on another day I think that's why but what it taught me is that we have so much more control over our hormones than we think we do and that as we go through menopause as you say it's this the body is a system it's a complete system you can't fix one bit of it without thinking about the impact of the whole. If you've got an imbalance in your right hip, then it's an imbalance in your whole body. There's something going on. You can't just fix the hip and expect everything to be perfect because by fixing the hip on the right, you might mess up the hip on the left. So you've got to think about this whole system. And we have more than a hundred hormones, which I've learned only recently, yeah. actually, yeah. I had no idea. So if we take the HRT, it might fix the sex hormones, but what else might be going on? And this is what I learned by going through all this process. And I've spent the last 15 years, basically, just finding out more and discovering yeah. more because I, it fascinates me. Absolutely. It's so interesting and that we do have more impact. But through the book, I've discovered that just because we have these accepted norms about menopause and HRT in the West. It doesn't mean that's the way the rest of the world thinks about it. We assume that because we've grown up with these ideas about menopause, women losing their value as they get older, all of these things, we tend to think that is it's gospel truth. And it isn't. It's just yeah. what we have been brainwashed to believe. Yeah, I, I think that's entirely true. I think we are seeing how diverse stories really are from around the world, how very different people are in connecting to their menopause experience. Sometimes that women become more powerful in places like Africa and the Middle East after their menopause because all of the stigma and shame sits around menstruating for them. And once you're not a menstruator, believe it or not, you have a completely different status. You can go out freely, can say what you like. And I think that is something we don't value because we just value youth. We're obsessed with it. And it drives me nuts. It drives me absolutely nuts, this obsession. And I always say that youth does not bestow some magical luster of beauty and perfection on the young. We've just been brainwashed to believe it does. And there is so much money in those industries to convince us that we are 
somehow less as we get older. I, I talk in the book about if you look at all the money that we spend on anti-aging creams or Botox or hair dye, if you look at your own personal spending, I've tried to do this because I bought all the, I don't dye, my hair hasn't lost any colour. So I'm always sort of trying to excuse myself in that respect because I'm always like, embrace the grey and you're not going grey, but never mind. My mum still has some colour in her hair at 87, bless her. But if you think about that collective amount of money that we spend, it's a national economy. If you look at yeah. a lifetime spend and then multiply it by billions of women on the planet. So a lot of people are making a lot of money out of making us feel insecure. And it's, I find it interesting that as countries get richer, their attitudes towards older women are changing to fit into more of the Western way of thinking yeah. about it. And I believe that is because of the marketing. It's because of the dollars that are there that companies can make from making us insecure and unhappy. Yeah. This morning I joined a conference, which is on dignified menopause. And there was actually a young woman, she's an analyst, and she was analyzing menopause ads from India. And they were doing exactly what you're alluding to there, Rachel, showing the woman going through menopause as being non-gray, slim, attractive, and very much her husband was gray and dignified. And that, and the narrative from the West, because that's not what it's really like yeah. in India, but yeah. you could see how that was talking to upper middle class people there who have money using English words and using images that certainly showed that aging was not to be part of this story. Disappointing, I think, yeah. more than anything else. Because the, the cultures where they have traditionally respected older people especially older women are changing to their detriment aren't they china is a good example yeah as well where women have to look a certain way now i mean japan and korea have had that but it's different but mm. i saw that in china the smoothing out of the face and wanting to look slightly western to be seen as attractive and i think that's a great loss for cultural diversity and it's a great loss for women because it's keeping the patriarchy very firmly in control which oh yes oh yes and you're right the money the money in this business shocking it is shocking because yes. I worked in FNCG so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty oh, of being part of it interesting yeah. interesting we have a lot of work to don't we Clarissa we, have we a really do so we do we have to just keep banging the drum on this because I don't want, I don't want women to succumb to those narratives as I did, which is why I've written the book because I just, I went down for a long time, several years and I questioned everything about myself and I got very low and it was only, in fact, it was, um, Shall I, shall I tell the whale story? Oh, you can tell. Can I tell the whale story? I would <laughs> oh, like to yes, do. I would like to tell my whale story. There's an amazing woman called Darcy Steinke who she's, I think she's a professor at Columbia University. And she wrote a personal memoir of her own menopause and she called it Flash Count Diary. And I read this book and in it she talks about becoming obsessed with a whale. <laughs> <laughs> and this whale was a very old whale. It was nearly a hundred years old and it was called 
J2, but otherwise known as Granny. And Darcy learnt that there are two creatures on this planet who go through menopause. There's human females and there are whales, mainly killer whales, but there are some other whales that do as well. And she became so obsessed with Granny that she decided she had to go out and find Granny. <laughs> so she monitored where Granny was on the internet because she can do things like that now. Yeah. <laughs> the internet. And um, so she monitored where Granny was. And then she got in a boat and she went to an island. And then from the island, she got in a little paddle boat and she paddled out and she met Granny. And you can identify these because of the dorsal fin. Oh, she talks about this on my podcast and I'm actually in tears while she's telling me this story because it's so amazing. But she credits that encounter and that knowledge about what a whale does post-menopause, i.e. they lead their pods often up, yes. for, up to 50 years. She credits that knowledge with completely changing how she felt about her man menopause transition. And that had a direct impact on her physical symptoms. Yes. And this is the point I try and make in the book, the how we feel about menopause, which is all wrapped up in how we feel about aging, impacts our specific experience of menopause, whether that be the physical side or the emotional side. It's both. Yeah, I, I totally agree because you look at the mindset that is, I think, being steered now that it's going to be a difficult experience. You're going to need help because you can't do this on your own and you have to have hormones. Now, there can be reasons why hormones could be important for you, but they're not to do with keeping you young or preventing menopause, which is a narrative I'm hearing. And rolling my eyes and wondering why would you want to do that but I'm also seeing that it, everything is worst case scenario so I'm not surprised that women are dreading this. And I know what's your response to this oh my goodness I get very frustrated because I think that there are facts and statistics that are thrown out and they scare women as you say women then just dread it it is something to be dreaded and it is not it is so not the other thing about the hrt that really worries me is that there is increasingly this narrative that women need to take it forever and that really just alarms me really and there are various reasons why you know to protect you against alzheimer's protect you against osteoporosis and heart disease hrt is never prescribed for those things it is prescribed specifically to help you with menopause symptoms and specifically hot flushes hot flushes but it is not prescribed for the other things and it shouldn't be and yet there is this narrative out there that it's a good thing to take it's good to do exercise it's good to eat the right diet. It's good to get a handle on your stress because if you don't, that is going to kill you. That's going to affect your heart, you know, and it's going to and your brain. So what I always talk about, and I talk about this in the book, is that I really believe menopause is this opportunity because I believe that the issues associated with menopause are the canary in the coal mine. They are the body's early warning system telling us about issues. You've only got to look at my experience. I went through early menopause. I have no doubt that stress and my inability to manage my stress brought about 
my hormonal fluctuations at 41. I've no doubt about that whatsoever. I'd lived a very stressful life. There's also been some reports that air pollution might bring about early menopause. And I've always lived in the most polluted places <laughs> in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Maybe there's that. So I'm always trying to be curious about what's going on. And if we mask these issues with HRT, we miss the opportunity to fix things. And so, for example, I know of a lot of women who love to keep drinking alcohol the same as they did in their 20s. And they take the HRT to sort out the menopausal issues. Whereas I know, because when I weaned, I, so I was on HRT from about 46 to 51, because of the early menopause, I was told to go on it and I weaned myself off 51. And I knew because the minute I had some alcohol after I'd come off the HRT, I immediately had a hot flush. Yep. So I know these things and I haven't had any caffeine since 41 because I was advised to come off it and I haven't had it. And I don't miss it now and I feel much better for it. So I want us to be curious about why these things are happening, what is going on, and then deal with those issues rather than masking it and missing that opportunity to fix things so that we can have long-term health and well-being. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think it's quite a UK narrative because the rules are quite strict here. Like living in Sweden, the rules are strict. They did drop the five-year rule, but there is no way, as I heard in a group, that I, as a 61, 62-year-old woman, can go to my clinician and get HRT. They would never agree to it here. But I know somebody who is 64 in the UK who has just been prescribed HRT for the reasons that we were, you were just mentioning here. And, and she must be more than 10 years post-menopause. And that's supposed to be a rule of thumb, but suddenly, you know, HRT, yeah, here you are. And I just think that you're right. These are warning signals, messages from our body that maybe we haven't taken as good care. We're pretty carefree in our 20s. We are. We, are. We're, we, we think we're, you know, invincible, but we're not. And the opportunity to change and look at ourselves is huge. And I think you quote Lisa Moroni, Simosconi so well in your book. And, and yes, she's, if anybody is a leading women's health expert, she's one of them. And she is so clear as she is on the videos she made for the women's health side of the movement about sleep, about stress, about diet. And yeah, maybe HRT, but she's not convinced yet that's been twisted to make it sound as if she is. Yes. And she, she makes the point that, going back to my hip analogy, if you add in something synthetic, it, you don't know what other impacts it might have long term. We're all guinea pigs, to be honest. We don't know what the long term impacts are of these things. And I also have a fear that I like to think about the environment. And these things, the HRT, it comes highly packaged. It is synthetic. It is not a natural substance and it comes in plastic and foil. And the one thing that I do use sometimes is I use localized vaginal estrogen. Yeah. And there, there are two types that I've been prescribed. One is a pill and the other is a cream. And I used the pill, the pessary for quite some time. But then I really thought about it. I thought each single dose comes in a plastic applicator. 
inside of another piece of plastic. Inside of another piece of plastic. And I just thought, I don't want to do this. I can reuse the applicator, but that's not an option. So you get this tiny little pessary and this big piece of blue plastic, which is not recyclable. And so then I switched to the cream because you get one tube of cream with one applicator. But again, you still have to repeat the applicator. And if we don't, if we're trying to move away from using toothpaste in tubes because tubes don't decompose either, do we really want to be expanding our use of unrecyclable things? No. And in addition, we're obviously somehow excreting that back into the environment yes. through, through waste. And who knows if that's recycling in our water, what impact is that having on younger people, males in our environment? So there, there are longer term implications that are not popular, I would say, mm. to have. And I know many people that you and I have jointly had on this show have been Unfortunately, really quite attacked for having a different point of view, which I think is very sad. I, I not, get attacked. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I've I been do attacked too. in the past. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's. But I think you mentioned a point there about this relationship between ageism, sexism, menopause. Let's discuss that a little bit. How is that ageing narrative more woven into what's being said about menopause? As I always quote Ashton Applewhite, the anti-ageism activist, who is just incredible. She's my shero. She introduced me to the idea that ageism begins between our ears. And as I did with the shriveled up old prune narrative, that was me being ageist against myself. Of course I was midlife. I might not have been quite the right age for menopause, but I was in midlife when that happened to me at 41. But I was in denial. And... I believe that because we have these attitudes about getting older, that therefore we fear menopause more. And then, as I said, it, it impacts on our experience of menopause, the degree to which we fear it. So if, it's, if we've got all these ideas about menopause, they can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we believe that something is going to be awful, then we're going to believe it's awful. And I think that where the ageism gets really insidious with sexism is that there is such a gulf in our society, in what I call Anglo society, between being a fertile woman and being an infertile woman. And you've talked about us worshipping youth. That's what we do. And we put all of our value onto youth. And we don't value older women. We don't value postmenopausal women. And that really needs to change so that we can empower women to feel good about getting older and empower women to feel good about going through menopause. I've been post-menopause supposedly now for about 15 years, and I love it. And I like to say that the end of my fertility has been the most fertile time of my life. I'm doing things now that I never would have done before menopause. And it's these things that I really want to get across to women. I have this vision that one of these days we will actually look forward to menopause because, <laughs> you know, there's no more periods, there's no more monthly cycles, there's no more stomach cramps, there's no more fear of getting pregnant. You can have as much sex as you like whenever you want to worry about anything. And I want women to feel the power that, that I have experienced as a postmenopausal woman because 
it, and it's just puberty in reverse as well. It's not the end of meaningful life. It's another transition, but it's a transition that ageism combined with sexism has made completely narrative, sorry, completely negative in, in Western Anglo culture. And when I talk about Anglo, the, the, so what I'm talking about is I've seen the worst instance of ageism specifically towards women in what I call Anglo culture. And that's based cultures that come from Anglo-Saxon culture. So it's America, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and a bit of South Africa. And in those cultures, it is worse than anywhere. And I find it really interesting because when you look at ageism, I think most people know that maybe they don't, but some people know that in East Asia, as we talked about, women have more status as they get older, which some of them are losing. But you don't have to look too far, even in a European context, to find cultures where women have more status. Because if you look in Catholic countries or Orthodox countries, the non-Protestant ones, i.e. the non-Anglo ones, women don't appear, in my view, to suffer as much ageism as they do in my culture. No, I think that's true if we look at France or other parts of Southern Europe. You have a different status. Mm. I would say that it is living in the Nordics, having lived also in Australia and the UK, that I see subtle ageism. So it, it's difficult for an outsider to see it because you think, oh, yes, Nordic women are very strong and powerful. Now, then being old here is not seen as something strange. There's a lot of intergenerational mixing at the gym and all the rest. But you get to the workplace. Can you get a job as a 55-year-old woman? You couldn't for love nor money. I did really? an event here with a union, very Swedish, to be in a union, but there were women who had applied for over 100 jobs. They were 50-plus women. They weren't even getting to an interview, just young people. So I think it plays out differently, mm. but it's not as played out in the physicality, which mm. is so evident with the, the Botoxing and the being thin uh, and that sort of side of it that is endemic, especially living in Sydney. I mean, there's, there's no comment about that. Sorry, Australian friends, but <laughs> the pressure to look a certain way was, I think, exhausting, mm. to be honest. Mm. And I think it's interesting you mentioned exhausting. I think a lot of women get to midlife and are exhausted. They have been running on empty for years, decades, as I was. And then we have a bad menopause experience. So actually, I want to get to the younger women, not just to tackle the ages and with the younger women, but also to get them to think about how can they look after themselves better so that they can have a good menopause experience. And I think it's a number of, and her name escapes me now, but she did the training with, with Jenny Burrell, and so I did that. And she said, you know, every decade has a cumulative effect on the mm-hmm. menopause experience you will have. But I don't think that message is quite landing with you. No, it's not. I think we still, I did, we think we can have it all. And we might be able to have it all, but we can't necessarily do it all at the same time. No, that's probably the truth. But why do you think this ageism, sexism stays where it is? Is it just to do with the money from the industry or is it patriarchy? Is it men feeling that they have more power? over less feisty younger women. The ageism itself, going back to the Protestantism, is based in the work ethic of Protestantism because, 
as we get older, we the assumption is that we're not able to work and therefore our value goes down. And then I think in Anglo culture, we have particularly had the sexism that goes along with it. And I think a lot of that is the marketing. I really do. And I think social media hasn't helped in that respect. And I think it, there's a book that was written in 1966 in America. Have you heard about this? Feminine Forever. Oh, so it's, it's in, <laughs> it's in the book and written by Robert A. Will. And he was pushing HRT because he described postmenopausal women as being castrates. Oh, oh and, and, and he said that our vulvas and, and breasts just shrivel. Really? Yes. <laughs> Tell that yes. to people who are, are 50, 60, 70 and having, you know, great sex and looking great. And his solution was HRT. Yeah. And he, there's, a, there's an episode in it where he writes about a mobster coming and, and looking for help because his menopausal wife is not looking after him anymore. She's being stroppy and argumentative. And, and the mobster says to Dr. Wilson, if you don't fix her, I'm going to kill her. Uh, so she then gets on to uh, weekly estrogen injections. And before long, she's back looking after the mobster again and being docile and compliant. And I often talk about estrogen as being the biddable hormone because it's the yeah. one that keeps us nurturing everybody else rather than looking out for ourselves. But I, a good way I, yeah, I do think that this book has a lot to be responsible for in terms of attitudes towards women. It was a runaway bestseller um, when it was written. And for a long, he was promoting HRT and he was promoting HRT forever, feminine forever. And, uh, you know, it, it was, sales of HRT went up exponentially until the time of that survey when it was found to be linked to breast cancer, which has now been discredited and there is much less of a risk. But for a long time, that was the narrative and it was very popular. And guess who it was promoted by? The drug companies. Guess who yep. was paying Robert Wilson? The HRT drug companies. Oh, exactly. So I always say, honestly, it's a follow the money because usually yeah. there is some money involved. But yeah. this created a whole narrative about women only being valuable to their menfolk if they were fertile and if they were compliant and if they were nice little women. Yeah. And so that, that is really it, isn't it? Yeah. That it's being is. being a nice, small, accommodating little woman. And we're not anymore. No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> we are definitively not that anymore. And I think that's probably also the the sort of dissonance that's going on, because on the one hand, there is, as you said, this perpetuating and it's driven by beauty companies and drug companies and the pinking of menopause, I think is a good, that, that Sarah from the menopause inclusive course, she calls it the pinking, where all these supplements that cost her a huge fortune that... And the uh, menopause skincare, what's that about? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, don't get me started on that one. No, no, that one, that one is the, that's tied up in it all the way. So when you add all that up, and I have no idea who can afford to pay 300 for for supplements every month, 300 pounds. I mean, they're just ridiculous sums. The women are feeling they have to do. And but they, it's based in fear, isn't it? It's, based it's about the fear factor. Yeah. But then there's women out there like us and like lots of women that have been on both our respective podcasts 
who smash that that whole image. Mm. They're doing amazing stuff. This is when they come out the box, build businesses, write books, start podcasts. It's about bringing those women into the fore and the 20% who have an, a relatively symptom-free menopause. Bring them to the fore. They get forgotten. Oh, they yeah. get forgotten. It's the 20% who really suffer who get the attention. And I understand that because the negative voices will shout the loudest. The negative narratives will sell newspapers. The story, the negative stories will, the headlines will get people to buy stuff. Again, it's back to the money. But yes, I want to really promote a more positive perspective on menopause. It's been transformational for me. I really see it as a gift. It's allowed me to talk about this in the book as well, to take stock, to stop, to think about what I want for the rest of my life. And that's what I want menopause to be the catalyst for, that women use it to take the time to think about what's working, what isn't working, where they want to go, what they want to do. And I think one of the also very exciting things is that post-menopause, we do have a different hormonal profile. And guess what? We're supposed to. It's not a hormone deficiency. No, no. When I hear menopause being described as a deficiency disease, I really, I'm getting even higher up on my... Yeah. Because we're supposed to. We've done this for centuries. And also, people talk about we didn't live long enough before and therefore we didn't need hormones. It's not True. I'm just going to consult my notes just to get this absolutely correct. But in yes. in ancient Greek and, and Chinese literature, they talk about menopause. And Roman literature is really accurate about the age of menopause. So we've been going through menopause for years and life expectancy was pretty high in the 18th century. Yes, it's so not. it's not like it, we no. just suddenly got old enough to suffer with it. It's just not. not. That's wrong. And we have found here, not very far from where I live, remains of Stone Age women who are 80. Are you not telling me they have been through <laughs> menopause? Of course they have. So I think we buy into that narrative that suddenly in the last 100 years, this is when women have started to live longer. That's late rubbish. It's rubbish. I've had lots of relatives <laughs> in the past. They died of infection or child in childbirth. They died. And also, you've got to also think of when you're looking at life expectancy figures, you've got to think about all the people who died in childbirth. Yes. Sorry, in childhood, rather. It's Sorry, childhood. not child, oh, childhood. Yeah. Childhood. So if you get, yeah, if you get beyond childhood, then their life expectancy is very different to if you include yeah. everybody all in the same bundle. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So I think those are myths, the, the myths that need to be busted in menopause. That's what and doing. People do, bust those myths. <laughs> bust those myths and get on your soapbox. <laughs> Rachel, it's so lovely talking to you. I think there's a sort of a meeting of minds here of wanting to change this narrative. If you were going to say to the listeners out there, what are some of the key steps you think that they could take to start you know, shifting their own perspective? putting themselves back in, in control, what, what would you like? They've got to buy the book! <laughs> yes, that, yeah. They've got to buy my baby. I mean, that, honestly, so the book, the whole premise of the book is get the messy stuff sorted, get empowered, get resourced up so you can get the messy stuff sorted. You can sort out 
what your thinking is about getting older and get a better narrative about that and then think about where you want to take that. So, yeah, that. And listen to my podcast and just allow me to rant on my soapbox. No, but I think it's really important that we remember that just because we've been taught something or just because we believe something or just because everybody we've heard recently says a certain thing doesn't make it true. And I think trying to grab hold of that and stay curious, I'm always saying, be curious. Don't accept any narrative. Question it. Question me. Read my book and say, Rachel, you're wrong on that. That's fine. Let's have the discussion. But don't assume that any one narrative about aging, midlife and menopause is correct because it isn't. And there are many other narratives and you can take your pick. You can create your own midlife bouquet. You don't have to have the one that comes ready packaged for you. You're so right. I would say question what you read, particularly in social media, and ask yourself, what are the motives behind these people doing that? Are they going to make lots of money out of you? Are they trying to steer a particular direction because it's their version of the world, which May, is maybe not yours. You're right. I love that. Stay curious. Rachel, thank you for coming on Thriving Through Menopause. We will put the links to your book, to the Magnificent Midlife podcast, and your website on the show notes. And it's been a pleasure. Oh, it has for me too. Honestly, this is just wonderful. You've let me rant. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> just wait for it. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.